I'm your host, Tally Goth, Assistant Professor of Literary Theory and Cultural History at Cornell University. Born in London and based in New York City, my research negotiates what it means for me to be a Black woman from the United Kingdom and the haunted legacies of other Atlantic crossings. I explore these questions as a writer, curator, and a DJ, specializing in the narratives that emerge from histories of race, debt, and technology. My research is rooted in literatures and theories of labor that center Black feminist engagements with indigeneity and Asian diasporic racial formations. Much of my art and sign design practice explores what it means for me to be of Afro-Asian heritage, committed to forming intellectual communities beyond institutions. I am the founder of the Dark Laboratory, an engine for the study of race, technology, and ecology through digital storytelling, including virtual reality and DJing. And I'm Shannon Gleason, a sociologist and professor of labor relations, law, and history at the Cornell ILR School. I also co-direct the Migrations Initiative here at Cornell, and I'm an affiliate of the Latina Latino Studies Program in Brooks School of Public Policy. My research sits at the intersection of labor and migration studies, draws on both qualitative and quantitative research methods, and is inherently comparative and transnational. My work is interested in how low-wage workers mobilize their rights, the importance of state actors in driving and sometimes mitigating the precarity, and the role that civil society organizations play in implementing policies and helping workers navigate regulatory bureaucracies. My current book focuses on the role of immigration status in driving workers' experiences and the specific ways that race and gender intersect with various forms of legal status. I'm the daughter of an Anglo father and a Mexican immigrant mother, and many of the themes that we discussed this summer were deeply personal to me. And we were privileged to be in conversation with 30 colleagues this summer who hail from a variety of disciplines, including art, architecture, Africology, design studies, geography, history, literatures, sociology, and many more. In this episode, participants including Louisiana State University geography graduate student, Melanie Puka, from the Cornell Migration Summer Institute, sat down with Brown University professor Kevin Escudero. They talk about dreams for a decolonized Pacific, nonlinear temporalities, and alternative ways of knowing. The Pacific Atlantis group was also comprised of artist Andrea Chung, Priyanka Sen, Juwan Seo, Heidi Amin Hong, and Torin Nelson. Uh, Kevin, my law, thank you for th- taking the time to speak to us today. Uh, would you be kind enough to tell me how you came to be named and uh, a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure, thank you so much for having me. Um, uh, in terms of my name, um, my Mom is a refugee from Vietnam. She's Vietnamese and Cambodian. Uh, my dad is an immigrant uh, from Bolivia and South America. Um, and both my parents came to the U.S. at a young age um, when they were around 10, 11 years old. They have very difficult to pronounce names uh, that are very significant in their own languages. But uh, for Americans, I think it or don't really translate as easily. And so they gave me a, a very anglicized name, Kevin. Uh, because they wanted people to be able to pronounce it. 
and it was also the name of one of my dad's friends. And uh, Escudero is uh, my family last name, uh, coming from Escudo Shield uh, in Spanish, which is part of the Spanish colonial presence in Latin America. Um, and so not quite sure how, how that came to be other than kind of tied to that history of Spanish colonialism in Latin America. But um, yeah, those are kind of two of the ways that, that my names came together and, and that, uh, you know, shape how I identify myself. Thanks for sharing. Uh, names seem to tell us a lot about uh, who we who we come from, where we come from, and and how the world that we came from uh, has been shaped. Um, so we're going to take a deeper dive into your area of research to talk about dreams for a decolonized Pacific. Uh, we're going to unpack the relationships between Indigenous sovereignty and borders, and how laws, policies, and maps have been used, but also the ways that they might be used uh, differently to reimagine the world that we live in. So for you, what is the significance of futurity and nonlinear temporality for decolonization projects in the Pacific? Uh, yeah, that, that's a big question. Um, and I, I appreciate you asking that. And um, I mean, I think that for me, what really excites uh, me about this idea of futurity, futurism, um, is that it provides an alternative way of knowing that is not tied to existing structures that have been used um, and that are rooted in kind of normativized understandings of, well, this is the way the world is, this is what we accept as, as uh, reality, as truth, and, um, and allows for a thinking of alternative or, or other ways of knowing and knowledges. And, and for me, as part of this decolonial project, uh, a significant aspect of that is shifting towards non-imperial uh, practices of understanding time. And uh, right now I'm here in Guahan uh, in you know the Western Pacific, learning from folks in the Chamorro community. And in a lot of Pacific cultures, uh, time is not linear, it's circular and it's circular for a purpose. And, um, and so one thing I, I've been learning as I've been working with the folks here is uh, Motna, right? It is a concept in Chamorro epistemology and, and Chamorro worldview, which thinks about time as circular because time is not this future that you're going to reach at some point and then that's what you're kind of striving for, but instead it's your ancestors that are walking alongside you and guiding you in the path forward and that you're returning to your ancestors and that they are kind of accompanying you on this journey. And so I think futurism or futurity allows for kind of um, bringing those concepts and those frameworks into play into decentering uh, imperial kind of histories and ways of knowing and uh, of honoring um, kind of the traditions and cultures of Native Pacific peoples in a way that, um, you know, provides for an opportunity to, to go beyond a situation that a lot of folks find themselves in because of um, these histories and, and legacies of colonial empire in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. You speak with a, what seems like a really deep respect um, and awareness of, of some of the things that have been happening in the Pacific and more specifically in, in Guan. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how you got to doing work there? Sure. Um, so my mom is a refugee uh, from Vietnam. She's been in Cambodia. Um, and in 1975, when the U.S. was involved in uh, Vietnam, uh, fighting a war uh, with North and South Vietnam, uh, supporting the South Vietnamese government and trying to contain communism in Southeast Asia, 
that uh, a lot of Vietnamese refugees, um, about a hundred and you know twenty thousand refugees, were brought from Vietnam to the Philippines and then to Guam, um, and then later resettled in the United States. And so my mom was part of that refugee group, Operation New Life, and she was brought to Guam as a as a 10, 11 year old kid and uh, spent some time here before being resettled in, in the US. And so as part of my study of immigration, I started to try to trace these histories, kind of similar drawing on the work of Yen Lei Espiritu at UC San Diego and her work on kind of how refugees are, are brought through militarized spaces of empire. And um, so tracing my mom's family experience here in Guam and looking at some of the archives and the history and I realized that I wanted to also, as part of that work, um, understand more about the Chamorro experience, about the impact of the Vietnam War from an American perspective on Chamorros, uh, on Chamorros who fought in the war um, and who were drafted, uh, and Chamorros who volunteered to fight, and Chamorros who were part of the, the people who welcomed Vietnamese when they came to Guam. Um, and so it's been a real kind of privilege to learn from them. Um, and people have been really open to talking with me. And there are Vietnamese refugees who stayed in Guam who decided to, to make their, their homes here on the island. And so um, I think that's kind of how I, I came to working uh, with folks in Guahan. And um, it, it's still a, a part of a process of kind of trying to better understand immigrant justice movements, but also the ways that uh, you know we can be in solidarity as as refugees or children of refugees with uh, Native Pacific peoples uh, and, and their movements for decolonization, and so I think that's been kind of what kind of responsibility as a as a settler do you have to the Native peoples of of the places that you're you're traveling to and and from? So, yeah, right. Our research almost always uh, starts off with us, right? We start off with a question about maybe where we came from or where we think we might be going and, and we kind of trace backwards and then we find that there's actually a whole lot of work that can be done. Um, so that's really cool. Thank you for sharing uh, that story, especially about your mum. So how do you think uh, Indigenous Pacific Islanders and other colonised island communities um, are uniquely positioned to imagine a decolonised future, uh, given the... the the particular relationships that you've that you've uh, witnessed and, and done research on, uh, particularly between Indigenous uh, islanders in Guahan and uh, the refugee communities that you've been talking about. Um, I think that um, you know Indigenous Pacific Island communities, particularly in the context of Guahan, um, are uniquely positioned to imagine a future in that and a decolonized future in the sense that. They are the folks who have suffered um, colonialism, like in Guahan. It's been multiple layers of colonial history. So thinking about uh, the Spanish and then uh, Spanish colonialism, uh, American imperialism, Japanese occupation, and then American imperialism again. And, uh, and so multiple <laughs> hundreds of years of, of these different empires. And I think that's a, a common narrative across the region at times. Um, it is uh, of Oceania, of the Pacific. And so, I mean, I guess one thing that I've heard many times in conversations with organizers and, uh, and activists is, is that, you know, it's the people that have been subjected to these injustices. It's their uh, right and their um, perspective that needs to be centered of what do they want to see in terms of a future, a decolonized future. And 
Uh, I think it's hard for people who are also subjected to, you know, in, in the case of Guahan U.S. Empire, um, residing in uh, the island to have to take, um, you know, to, to understand that, yes, they've experienced a particular type of historical uh, injustice as refugees from Vietnam, as being resettled, but that also, um, you know, honoring the perspective of indigenous peoples of this place uh, who have been colonized and subjected to these forces in a, in a particular way that immigrants and refugees might not have. And so kind of understanding those relationalities and the difficulties of that. But I mean, I think that um, in the end, centering the perspectives of the people whose land it is, who have an ancestral relationship and a historical kinship relationship to the space um, and trying to, to recognize that, that that is really important um, as part of this conversation of thinking about the future. And this this idea of uh, imagining, uh, as you know, the the Migrations Institute is really all about imagining. And so we're thinking about the, you know, the future, 350 years into the future, what the world could look like. Um, and some of those things include conversations, especially about borders or not borders, as the case might be. Um, so in one of your recent articles, you chart how Indigenous Chamorro community leaders reconfigure borders to foreground Indigenous sovereignty and futures that prioritise Indigenous well-being and demilitarization. Um, so I guess our question is, how can Indigenous imaginations of border sovereignty disrupt and recast the logics of border imperialism, which designs borders to restrict and police the mobility of immigrant communities? Yeah, so um, I think in that piece, I was trying to um, understand borders from a, a non-nation state perspective in some way and more of a uh, political sovereignty perspective, though I understand they're both very much entangled one in the other. Um, and I, I know that, you know, as part of the U.S. empire, uh, Guahan uh, implements federal immigration laws. And so a lot of those laws that apply in California per se apply here in, in Guam. Uh, and so what does it mean uh, for those laws to be you know, applied in a context that is very different, that is closer to Asia than it is to the United States, um, that has a different historical relationship to the islands around them. Uh, and, and so I think um, I, I was trying to, to work through this idea of, you know, with the COVID pandemic and the inability of the governor of Guahan to to implement her own immigration policy in terms of closing the airports, uh, in terms of preventing people from coming to the island, given the small population, given the way in which the uh, virus could spread very quickly uh, on a small island community where there's a lot of people who are related in terms of families to one another and so want to see their families, want to see their communities, and so what that could mean. And I think a lot of other Pacific Island nations had taken measures to prevent um, the spread of the virus by closing down airports or halting uh, arrivals for a certain period of time. And Guahan wasn't able to do that because of the federal immigration law. And so they had to implement whatever was happening in the, in the federal government. And again, that was, you know, thinking about Canada, thinking about Mexico, thinking about European arrivals. Um, and so I wanted to think through like what role were Indigenous activists asking for the government to do? And I think part of that was thinking about the way that as part of their organizing that they could advocate for greater autonomy around their own immigration policies, around how to maybe prioritize um, historical relationships with other Micronesian communities 
um, and Asian communities that have um, been in contact with folks here in Guam for a long time, and to think less about, you know, the preoccupation of the United States, which is about controlling immigration and bringing immigrant laborers, but then uh, deporting them so that they can't stay and start a family and things like that. And so these temporary migrant workers and, and stuff like that. So I think that piece was trying to get at that um, and uh, kind of try to kind of, yeah, flesh that idea out of what does it look like in terms of thinking about borders in that context. Yeah, you're totally right that uh, that the kind of idea of the colonial nation state or, and even things like land tenure and the way that time is divided, right, really does not account for lived realities of many. Um, and so, I mean, part of our project is kind of thinking about how we might confound those ideas um, by imagining, you know, the world in, in 300 years. But as you can imagine, unlearning some of that stuff is really tricky. It's really, really tricky. Um, so with that in mind, how do you think we might reimagine uh, immigration policy in the context of South-South migration? For example, um, Hashi Walia advocates for the dismantling of borders entirely. So how do you think we might be able to understand open and abolished borders if we took into account Oceania and South-South migration? Um, I mean, I think that... I'd be interested in the answer to that question too. Um, I think uh, I really admire the work of uh, Harsha Walia as well um, and find the arguments to be really interesting. I think, you know, um, thinking about some of the scholarship on Oceania, Epile, Hafla, and other folks, like how to, how to think about Oceania as a space, as a sea of islands, uh, of communities that are interconnected, um, of people who have these relationships with one another um, as Pacific peoples, Native Pacific peoples, and, and not to kind of be preoccupied with, with borders, right? Um, and, and I think that uh, honoring those connections and trying to think through like, what could those connections really look like if um, borders were not drawn in a way that um, are tied to kind of the colonization of the region, but more so kind of the histories and connections that Pacific peoples have to one another. Like, I mean, I've been talking with some colleagues and we talk about Guahan and Hawaii because those are part of U.S. empire in the Pacific. Uh, but Guahan also has connections with, um, you know, other parts of the region that are not part of the U.S. empire. And so how do we think about those relationships uh, without kind of using this colonial framework or lens? Um, and then also that... Um, the the Polynesian, Micronesian, Melanesian problematic kind of division uh, and going beyond that, I think would be interesting. And I mean, I, I've learned a bit about FESPAC, Festival of the Pacific uh, Games. And I think FESPAC is a way that people have come together and they have created spaces outside of, um, you know, these political boundaries to represent their islands and their communities and their nations. Um, and also to share kind of uh, the overlapping experiences and, uh, you know, kind of uh, similarities and commonalities across being Native Pacific peoples. And so I think um, those are encouraging ways to think beyond um, borders and to kind of um, invoke that idea of like a borderless society. But, um, you know, I'd be excited to see in 100 years or, or less, you know, in 20, 30 years, what people would do and, and how they'd want to uh, configure that, especially in this region. Yeah, yeah I really liked how you invoked uh, Billy Hoffa's uh, 
like truly revolutionary vision. Um, and I remember when I first read it thinking, I don't know that I understand what he's talking about. And then you realize that actually the whole point is that you're kind of not initially not meant to understand and that it really does confound these ideas about territorialized Pacific Island nations. Um, where actually once upon a time we used to travel to each other. I mean, we also used to invade each other, you know, but the ocean was very much a kind of uh, an open motorway, so to speak, multi-directional motorway um, for, for everyone to kind of get to each other. Um, and I think if we can figure out ways to make that kind of thinking a reality, then we might be getting a little bit closer to this idea of like a borderless world or at least a borderless Oceania or Pacific. Um, you mentioned some work that you're doing with the museum in Guam. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, uh, one thing I've done is as part of this exhibition I'm working on for the Guam Museum is to incorporate kind of these maps that are colonial era maps and then maps that are maps drawn by organizers or activists um, to kind of delineate certain things like this is where the military bases are or this is where um, certain you know historical events and kind of juxtapose those two so people can see you know the perspectives on okay this is kind of a uh, a mapping done of us, but not by us. And this is a mapping done by us and for us for a particular purpose. Um, and so I think that's kind of one creative way I found mapping uh, to be effective and to be useful in terms of pointing out these um, shifts in time over how land is used and and how empires kind of facilitated and grows, but also um, to incorporate technology into centering perspectives of the people of different communities and helping folks who want to learn about an issue and want to support, but might not necessarily be from a community and understand the importance of land and space to get a better familiarity or understanding of that. It sounds really exciting. <laughs> also like a lot of work, but it does sound really exciting. And cool to be thinking about different ways to, I mean, we are mapping kind of virtually, but um, all together, but you're kind of mapping in a very physical and material way. Mm -hmm. So thank you for, for speaking to us today. I think I am really excited to see kind of the work that you all are doing because I think it's, it's pushing these conversations in ways that they need to be pushed. Um, and uh, in grad school, I didn't have this kind of conversation and even as a pre-tenure faculty member. So yeah, I think I... I'm definitely looking to learn from other scholars like yourselves. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening to The World We Became, MapQuest 2315, the culmination of an experiment on the study of race and migration using speculative design and digital methods. We'd like to thank all of our participants from the 2021 Cartographies of Racial Justice Summer Institute at the Migrations Initiative of Cornell University with support from the Office of the Vice Provost of International Affairs, the Mario Ainaudi Center for International Studies, and the Mellon Foundation's Just Futures Initiative. You can learn more about the initiative at migrations.cornell.edu, where you can also find relevant links from this episode. Follow us at Global Cornell and hashtag Cornell Migrations. Original music was created by Jesse Scambati and David Gonzalez produced each episode. Much of the podcast was produced at Cornell University on the traditional homelands of the Cayuga Nation, and we recognize the Cayuga Nation's sovereignty and indigenous peoples who have lived and continue to live on this land.